The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. My name is Darren Smith, the senior pastor here at Tower View Baptist Church. On behalf of our staff, uh, we want to thank you for joining us this morning. We especially want to thank those who are joining us for the first time. Maybe this is your second, third visit. Thank you so much. You can learn more about us at TowerViewKC.com, TowerViewKC.com. We are in Kansas City, Missouri, pretty much right smack dab in the middle of America on the north side of the Missouri River in the Kansas City area. This morning, we will continue our study of the, the book of Nehemiah. We're in our fourth installment of our series entitled The Story of New Beginnings. And we will just read Nehemiah 4 straight through, as we usually do. And we're going to be looking at some things today. As Nehemiah has been called out by God to go back to Jerusalem after it's been destroyed, and he's not rebuilding the temple, he's not really rallying the people spiritually, that's part of it, but really his job and what God has put on his heart is to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the actual structure, the defense of the city, some two square miles around the city. And that's where we pick it up. And he, he uh, just noted last, last week as we read through literally these names that are, that are ancient names but were important people. And we talked about last week how each one played a significant role in God's work. And so as it often is, when God's work begins, the enemy is right behind. So Nehemiah chapter 4 hear God's word. This isn't just a story. This isn't just a, uh, another voice in the crowd. This really is the truth, the word of God given to us. So may our ears be open. May God bless our reading as we do. Let's read together. Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall or building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and, and burned ones at that? And verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. And verse 4, Hear, O God, this is Nehemiah, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Don't cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, O Lord, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So verse 6, we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, verse 11, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. 
At the, that time, the Jews who lived near them came from the directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in, so in all this, and they said that you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind a wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When, verse 15, our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Verse 18, and each of the builders had his sword strapped on his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So verse 21, we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be on guard for us by night and may labor by day. So verse 23, neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the God stands forever. Let's pray as we start. Thank you again for joining us. We'll get right into this. This is a loaded passage that has much to say about our relationship to God in these times as we walk by faith in honor of our God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much as we hear these words. We hear the faithful response of the people in Nehemiah in the face of opposition. Yet, Lord, so often as we look across this world and as we live out our faith, we too would cower. We too would, would not have the wisdom here. We too would fall prey to the very things that Nehemiah was able by your grace and spirit to stand against. So, Lord, give us wisdom. May you apply this to our hearts. May everything we say and do in this passage, Father, be, be, be reality in our lives. We pray especially for those who are like Sambalad and Tobiah and the Ammonites and, and Geshem and the Arabs and the Tekoites and all those people, Lord. We pray that those who are enemies of the cross now, by your grace, would be drawn to be believers of the cross, Lord, that by grace, through faith in Christ alone, they may be saved and repent of their sin. Father, we pray for your wisdom. May your spirit guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is the history of God's people that we are going to suffer. Some notable examples in history are, uh, for instance, a, a story of John Calvin, who was one of the great reformers, was in Geneva, and people would name their dogs after Calvin and would call their dogs Calvin, and they would kick them so that when they kicked them, they would be bringing shame on the name of the preacher John Calvin. Or when he preached, Calvin would have people yell and talk loudly so people couldn't hear him. When the Genevan City Council outlawed that, anyone could, that anyone could talk or yell, some people made loud bodily noises like little boys do when they get together, or teenage boys, even grown men do instead. But he said this in loose terms. Calvin said, I'd rather submit to death a hundred times than go back to that situation, end quote. George Whitfield, perhaps one of the greatest American preachers of the American colonies, was famous in England and used to travel the coastline before the Independence War of the late 1700s. 
and a declaration was was now uh, in a far worse state, they said, because he came to preach. After he preached in other places, Whitfield was called blasphemous. He was attacked one time by a woman with scissors. Stones were thrown at his head. And at one point, people started throwing dead cats at him as a way to deter the gospel from being preached. Whitfield also recorded one time as he was traveling on horseback, which he did for thousands of miles, that one person tried to urinate on him while he passed below as the man was above. Look, you can expect opposition if you live to if you seek to live for God. You can expect opposition, especially if you lead people to seek and live for God. We tend to think that God blesses when things are smooth and curses us when things are tough. But that's often, friend, not the case. Conflict and opposition are the greatest signs that the enemy doesn't want to see things happen and a reminder we are often doing the right thing, which is God's thing. If you're leading God's people in a godly context, you can expect opposition from within and from without. Every leader who's been in ministry knows this. In fact, as we have sent out about 20 young men and women over the years here at Tower View in most recent years, one of the most shocking things that these young people ask about is how to handle conflict. What do I do with opposition, Pastor? It's not questions about preaching or counseling or funerals. Those do come up. But the most often question is, is what do I do with conflict? And constant conflict in leadership is going to happen as you serve God, whether you're a leader or a follower. If you're living for God, Satan has a target on your back. The old saying is, is if, you're, if all are mad at you, you're doing something wrong. And if all are happy with you, you're definitely doing something wrong. Look, if you are God's child, could it be that the difficulties you face are not the opposition of the enemy, but God's grace in bringing you closer to him, just like Job? I mean, what do you do, though, when you're facing Satan's opposition? And what keeps you from giving in when facing resistance? Well, the big idea, the summary of the sermon from this text in Nehemiah 4 is simply this, is we cannot avoid suffering. We can't avoid opposition. But we can make it worse when we think it's something strange or unusual. For all of us everywhere, if we're following Christ with a radical, unflinching devotion, we'll have opposition. But the stronger the winds of opposition to the gospel and God's work, the higher, like a kite, it soars. Opposition is a cue to pray and not quit and not give up. And personally, I pray that we want to be better at responding with kindness in those times, as Christ did when he was on the cross, rather than reacting with irritation. I pray that we understand people before we critique their positions, even when they bring venom into our lives. I pray that we pray more for the opposition, those, uh, those enemies of the cross, even those people within the church that may have an opposite view of what God is doing and what he is trying to do. That we may handle conflict redemptively and remember that the, there's nothing so big the gospel can't forgive by God's grace. And that we ourselves will repent quicker. So this morning, we're going to see two types of opposition here in Nehemiah, and we're going to see three responses to the opposition, because we can't avoid suffering. We can't avoid opposition, but if we're following Christ, it's always going to be there. So let's start there at the very first. The first type of opposition here is we see ridicule. You noted that in verse 1, didn't you, that it says right from the start, when they have all this momentum of building the wall, it says now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and he was greatly enraged. These are two unique Hebrew words here. They literally mean what they say. It means he was boiling hot mad. You could have 
you could have put a temperature on him and that mercury would have jolted out of that thermometer. It was that mad. How could they do this? And then he says in verse 7 again that he was very angry. So he starts to ridicule. He starts to throw words. He starts to get in the heads, if you will, of God's people. And to tear someone down about who they are and what they do is very effective because we're all weak and we all have, if we're honest, hidden insecurities. None of us is 100% confident or resolute to the point where even talking to us can happen or talking down to us cannot shake us. So Sambal is relentless. He throws out five different taunts. He says, what are they doing? It reminds them of their weakness. He says, secondly, are they going to restore this for themselves? I mean, don't you guys know you can't do this? He says, will they sacrifice? He basically questions their faith in God. I mean, are they going to sacrifice to God if poof, all of a sudden a wall is going to pop up? It's one thing to mock you, but it's another to mock God. But he goes on. He says, will they finish up in a day? I mean, don't they realize how great this task is, Sam Ballot says? And yes, few things are more discouraging as they look over your shoulder and critique everything you do. Will they revive the stones? He's mocking them in their materials. These guys are using inferior materials. But it doesn't stop there. This first type of opposition, the ridicule, continues on with Tobiah. And this is kind of that weird relationship where in old cartoons or old movies, you had the leader of, of the bullies, and then you had his sidekick who kind of mocked everything or repeated like a parrot everything he said. That's kind of the picture of Tobiah here. Tobiah says, yes, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone walls. He says, look, even if a little, even if a little animal, a few pound animal jumps on that wall, it's going to crumble. It's meant to cause fear and anxiety. He's telling them, you're doing the wrong thing. Who do you think you are? And friends, fear can take many forms. Fear can take many forms. There's fear of injury. There's fear of sacrifice. But there's fear, most of all, that you will fail. And here, Tobiah plays to that whim in this ridicule as he continues on. But then Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites, it reminds us of Psalm 2 that they are the nations that are raging and they're being plotted or they're plotting against God's people. But I want you to know this ridicule is literally coming from all around them. This is a picture in a geographic map of all the directions ridiculing the Jews. From every geographical direction, from every providence under the Persian flag, they are ridiculing the Jews for what they are doing. They're literally coming from all directions. Christian, I just don't I just need to remind you of this. You will be ridiculed for your faith. If you are really living out your faith, there will be words said to you. But Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5 that blessed are they when they ridicule you and say all sorts of nasty things about you, for great is your reward in heaven, Matthew 5. So, Christian, remember, this is part of your lot. But just because you're ridiculed doesn't mean it's ridiculed on account of God. It could be your own sin. You could be you could simply be bringing things up that are not godly, but in the name of God, you think it's godly, and everything that's falling on you is just a result of your sin. You're, you're, it's a consequence of your actions. Be careful that you don't have a false view of the ridicule here. But it is a lot of God's people that verbally, there will be an assault on God's people. I have a good friend of mine who is a, a good internet friend, pastor friend, uh, Pastor Josh, and I won't say his last name. He serves in uh, the, the European landscape. And this past year, he's a, a new church planner in the area, and they have been doing everything correctly according to the law for COVID. But he preached a sermon one time that called out a very specific sin of that city. 
and one of those people who's in that very specific sin, almost like Herod did to John the Baptist, riled up the community. And he started saying things about him. He threatened his family on Facebook. He went to the local newspaper, and, and the newspaper printed his words that if jo Pastor Josh says these things again, there's going to be trouble. And I remember Pastor Josh writing very clearly that this is just part of the lot of him being a pastor. He wants his family safe. He's not trying to ride in cavalier-like into some danger. But he knew as he worked out the gospel in that city, just like every other Christian before him, that words were going to fly. Thankfully, he's safe, and through that hard time, the church has prospered even during lockdowns in that particular area. So there's opposition that's ridicule. But notice the opposition here that's physical. Notice verse 6. They had built half the wall. They're tired and exhausted. It says, so we built the wall, and the wall was joined together half a tight, for the people had a mind to work. The people were ready, but they were tired. Their muscles ached. Their, their, you know, their strength was waning. And our strongest attacks from the enemy, from Satan, and all those who assail God's kingdom, who try to assail God's kingdom, often come when we are tired. And these Jews were challenged not only with physical, excuse me, with, with verbal ridicule, but also physical ridicule. The enemies of God always threaten death, and it's so easy to throw in the towel. We read about how they were going to come and attack them, and, and we'll get to the response of Nehemiah in just a minute. But you need to know, Christian, that it's not just the words that will oppose you, but it can be physical threats. It can be things, and people like Pastor Josh, where the, his life was threatened, his family was threatened. And there comes a time where we have to ask the question, is it worth the cost? There's a place, biblically, where we are to shake the dust off our feet, to use the biblical term, and move to the next city. That's what ne not Nehemiah did here. We don't know why, except that God had called him there. God had put him there. And God knew that Nehemiah would face this. He's allowed this, this, this ridicule in his divine sovereign providence. But Nehemiah was willing to stay. Paul in Acts 9 was told when he was converted on the road to Damascus how much he had to suffer for the name of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians, he says that he was imprisoned. He was near death. He received 40 lashes, less one. He was stoned three times. Night and day, he was adrift at the sea. He had danger from robbers and Gentiles and cities and wilderness and beasts and everything else. But the same Paul who was stoned in Lystra said to the churches, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Christian, you're probably watching this here in America, maybe in a, in a first world country where physical persecution of Christians is less. Will there come a day when we will have to choose between going to church and being thrown in prison? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not the prophet or the son of one. But I think we need to remember that this is all part of discipleship and all part of marking out God's people is the suffering that they face. And so the greatest signs that God are working is that there will come opposition. And Christian, when that time comes, may you pray as Nehemiah did, may we pray for the strength to face what it is that we're facing in front of us. So there's opposition, there is ridicule, and there is physical attacks. So how do we stand against this opposition? How do, what should be our response? And this is where we'll spend the majority of the rest of our time. Notice that Nehemiah, though, did not respond in kind. When they prepared for attack, he didn't lash out first. In fact, he did three things. And I want to run through those with you quickly. How do you withstand opposition? To withstand opposition, first, let us run to God in prayer. Let us run to God in prayer. Notice verse 4 again. It says, Nehemiah, he said, Hear, O God, 
for we are despised, turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Prayer is the greatest line of defense we have and any weapon that we have. It's the greatest weapon of all time. We could summon a sword, a tank, a nuke, but it can't compare to God's sovereign power. In fact, God's the, the author of those things in nature and creation through the minds of men. But they are surrounded on every side by the enemies, and they are posturing. But notice, like Nehemiah did in chapter 2, when he had prayed for, for months for the moment that he might speak to the king to get back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls, so too he runs to God first. Before he responds, he prays to God. Oh, Lord, that you would give me that faith, that when something comes my way, whether it's impromptu or planned, that I would go to you first. He, these enemies, he knows, don't stand a chance. And no enemies, because the Scripture reminds us in Matthew 16, the promise that was given to the church is that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's quite a prayer he prays. It is what we call in the Psalms an imprecatory prayer. It's a prayer of justice. It's a prayer of God. Smash them in their teeth is what David says in the Psalms. You may recoil a bit at that. I mean, how could he pray this? I mean, I mean, doesn't he want these people to see the glory of the nations like we talked about last week in chapter 3? Hey, Pastor, aren't we supposed to, in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, pray for your enemies? But friends, it's a reminder. It's a reminder to us. It wasn't just an attack against him, but it was an attack against God himself. There's a place and a time, even as Christians, that we pray for God's divine justice to sweep over the land. That God would save people, He'd bring people, He would restore people, yes, but sometimes it takes the assault of God's Spirit literally bringing people and leveling civilizations that stand against Him so that the gospel may flourish. Again, this is not just a battle against the Jews, but against God's people. A holy prayer because he's calling for God's justice where sin has taken hold and they've refused to back away. He's basically praying, God, in verse 4, let your justice reign. Let it come down. And what the enemies of God's people don't know is that they are not, again, just against us, but they're setting themselves up against the Almighty God. Jesus said to Paul in Acts 9, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. Why are you persecuting Christians? No. He said, why are you persecuting me? Speaking of himself, it's not just God's people that Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and Geshem and, and the Ammonites were against. It's not just those things. He says, it's God. It's not just an enemy of the church, but it's an enemy of God. So friend, don't run to your friends. We often do that. That is good, but make it secondary. Do what Nehemiah does here. When you stand against opposition, my prayers don't always stop attacks, but it gives me strength in the midst. Daniel, Jesus, Nehemiah prayed because it calmed their fears and their worries. And after that prayer, what does he do? Verse 6, he tells you. He tells you what it is. He said, so we built the wall. I prayed. I gave it to God. And the enemies came back ten times over. The Jews should have been friends and allies are now opposed to the work. But he continued to pray and pray and pray. To stand against ridicule, to stand against physical opposition, you must pray. Secondly, to withstand opposition, you must remain responsible. You must remain responsible. He goes on here, and he gathers all the people by the clans. Did you notice that? He gives them weapons and shields and swords, and he does all this sort of thing. And that's down in verse 13. I station the people by their clans with their swords or spears and their bows. 
He put them in clans because you will defend your own sons, fathers, and families more than you will do so other people you don't know. But this is also what he did with the wall. Remember last week, he had the priests repair their house and other people repair their houses. I mean, some transferred from unit to unit, but as a whole, he knew that where they were invested is where they would invest themselves for the defense of the city if necessary. But notice here, he remains responsible. He didn't do as we say in America. He didn't just let go and let God. He didn't just let go and let God, or us either. We don't just give up effort in trusting God. The Bible does say, cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. And God's sovereignty is not an excuse for negligence. God's sovereignty is not an excuse to sit back and watch the fireworks rain like Jonah watched or wanted to watch happen to Nineveh in Jonah chapter 4. Trusting in God is upholding our duties that He's given us, the commands He's bestowed upon us, and being busy about the things before us, but with the confidence that God will accomplish all He promised. Waiting on the Lord isn't just sitting back twiddling your thumbs. Let, sending your prayers to God, casting all your cares on Him, isn't just kicking your legs up in an easy chair. It should bring you peace. It should bring you faith. It should bring you strength in times of trial. But He will do what He said. Paul said to the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so, just like Nehemiah here, we're to engage, but engage responsibly. Yes, we're praying against ridicule and physical opposition, but we're going to engage prayerfully and prayerfully responsible. But when he is at work, you are at work. So he equips them. He encourages them. He has the people work in shifts, and he keeps a, a trowel uh, in one hand, and it reminds me of uh, uh, some bricklayers, the, 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 the Dewey brothers, Jack and Jerry, we had, who unfortunately passed this past year in our church. They were brick masons for decades. He kept a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And this is a picture of the Christian life. We're ready to fight and move on. It's kind of like the Boy Scout motto. We have some Boy Scouts in our church, and their motto is, be prepared. They slept with their clothes on and their boots on. They were ready for whatever would come in the morning. They were ready for action. This is why 1 Corinthians reminds us to be watchful and act like men. But, and I'm not endorsing the whole movie, but this particular scene is famous in a lot of motivational things. Can't you picture this as a Braveheart moment? Can't you feel like Mel Gibson here is kind of in the text? They're gathered by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows and Nehemiah is talking to them as he goes about. They're ready. And he says the key verse of Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 13. He said, verse 14, he says, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your children, and your homes. And somehow in there he yells, Freedom! With a Mel Gibson voice. If you haven't seen the movie, you just, you just got to go with it. But don't be afraid. That is a command. Don't be afraid in the face of opposition. As Joshua, be strong and courageous is to call a time and time again for leaders and for followers. So how do we withstand opposition? We are prayerful. We're going to remain responsible. And finally, we are going to remember. We are going to remember. Outside of not being afraid, this is one of the most normal commands of Scripture is to remember to recall, to bring to mind, or do you remember that time God did this? Remember what? Well, you remember the Lord. You remember what He's done for you. You remember what He has said to you. You remember the promises He made to you. Why? Because it's so easy to forget, even today. 
I mean, with all this technology we have, we have smartphones that can record pretty much everything. They surprise you sometimes because the things you're talking about with your spouse end up on a Facebook ad as you scroll through, and you never told your phone to do that. I mean, somebody's always listening, but it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget his mercy. It's easy to forget his strength. It's easy to forget how he worked in the past. But look back on his faithfulness. What he has done in the past gives us peace in the present and hope in the future. A Christian's mind should be littered in a good sense with remembrance stories. Hey, do you remember when God did this? Do you remember when God did that? Do you remember that time we prayed and we were so worried about this and God answered that prayer for us? Do you remember that? That's what God tells them to do. He tells them to remember. He, he tells them to pray. He tells them to be responsible. But Nehemiah calls their minds. This God is great. He's awesome. And Christian, what a truth that is for us in this world today. No matter the political landscape, no matter the, the health landscape, God is faithful. You can trust him. He who calls you is faithful, 1 Thessalonians, and he will do it. David Livingston, a famous missionary, had lost in Africa, lost his wife. He endured persecution by other believers, questioning why he was still there. He ministered half blind, but he basically said this. This is a loose quote, but he said, quote, send me anywhere, Lord, only go with me. Lord, lay any burden on me, but only sustain me. Sever from me any bind that tears me from your mind and your heart, end quote. So he tells them in verse 20. What does he tell them? Look back at verse 20. He tells them, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. And I say this about once every six weeks, it seems like, but it's so good to remember. Don't let prosperity, false gospel teachers steal what this means for you. If you give this to Joel Osteen or you give this... Uh, uh, any other preacher of the day that preaches a false prosperity gospel, they'll turn that into something that is not what God intended. So don't let them steal your joy. Friend, it means what it says. Our God will fight for you. It's the same thing in Exodus 14, 14, that Moses was told is just watch the Lord, be silent and step back and let me do my thing. Moses, you just hang tight. Darren's translation. But do you believe that? I mean, in this day, do you believe, as you're facing opposition, that God is able to fight for you? This doesn't mean negligence on your part. This doesn't mean if you're not truly repentant in your sin or seeking out His glory or trying to live and share the gospel through His kingdom. God will fight for you. But are you walking faithfully with Him? He can't be our Savior unless He's also our King. And as our king, he's defending us against all enemies. They may take our life, but Christ promises us throughout the scriptures, and Paul affirms it, all the writers affirm it, that, that we are held in his hands. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, because our God will fight for us. He's not just defending us against all our enemies, but they all shall lay at a, as a footstool under his feet. Christian, that is the promise we have, and that's what we hold to. And this is what happened as the assault came as they, as Jews came and jeered them, as, as they got all this ridicule physically and verbally, they stood in prayer, they stood in spiritual responsibility, and finally they remembered their God and the people took courage and took strength. So what do we learn from this? 
other than what we've shared as we close. First, I think you need to remind yourself that conflict is going to happen. It's inevitable. Conflict is going to happen. The church of Jesus Christ will have opposition from without, but first and greatest type of opposition we face is often the internal waywardness of our own hearts and our own sin. The most insidious opposition to the gospel often comes from churches that look no different than the world. But Christian, you need to remind yourself, and you can read 1 Peter 4, you can read 2 Timothy 3, you can read Psalm 119.71, just run the list. Opposition is a normal part of the Christian life. Not talking about being a jerk for Jesus, not talking about drumming up your own false persecution. Living for God by faith will bring you the target of the enemy. But Psalm 2 is very clear. There will be opposition to Christ and his cause, but God is on his throne, and he's not worried. He's laughing, it says. There's no harmonious coexistence, though, between the church and the world. Where there is no conflict, the world has been taken over. As long as we are on earth, conflict will be a part of life. As long as God is in heaven, though, there is hope that he can yet bring good out of it. See Romans chapter 8. If you've never had a conflict with another Christian, then, 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 then this is going to happen even within the church. Then you haven't stayed anywhere long enough to find out what a real relationship is like, because it's going to even going to happen in the church. But peace is not the absence of conflict, but it is the presence of Christ. What Philippians 4, 6 says is the peace that surpasses all understanding. And that peace of Christ gives us perspective, patience, and power in chaos for the opposition within, among believers, and especially without among unbelievers against us. But the gospel gives us hope that God can redeem any conflict. Again, opposition is inevitable. Conflict, if you're living for Christ, is going to happen. Secondly, prayer is crucial. Prayer is hard. And friend, if anyone tells you otherwise, that person is either lying or hasn't tried praying before. Prayer is hard work. Yes, we pray short prayers sometimes, but as we pray and live for God, we need to remember that it's there. Our hard times reveal our weakness. Our weakness reveals our need. Our need moves us to pray, but prayer opens the door to God's endless supply. And it did for Nehemiah. Even in the face of opposition, he, was, he prayed. He didn't run to his advisors. He didn't run to the, the, the elders. He ran again to God, and we too should do the same no matter what's in front of us or behind us. And because God has revealed that trials make us more like Christ, we don't pray for escape from trials, but we pray, as Paul said in Romans 5, for endurance and steadfast endurance through them. So we pray. We remember that conflict is inevitable. But we also remember here that discouragement is understandable. We remember that discouragement is understandable. Defeat, discouragement, anger, fear, and frustration will always result when you look to people and things to be your own personal Messiah. The discouragement of the people was that they perhaps were looking to Nehemiah to be more than he was able to be. But the more opposition, the more we will rejoice in the Lord, the more discouragement, the more confidence we have in the Lord. The encouragement of Christ is far greater than any discouragement we feel. The love of Jesus far exceeds any loss that we face. So, friends, you need to remember that discouragement is understandable. You're going to get it. The question is, is are you ready to face it together? And that's why, fourthly, unity is essential. 
while many in the American church worry about threats outside the church, I think we should be more worried about the greatest threats to the and the advancement of the gospel is the unity that we don't have inside the church. Dr. Mark Dever said this. He said, unity in the nation can be helpful. Unity in the local church, though, is essential. Work, pray, and speak, and act accordingly. For Nehemiah's people were trembling to some degree. They're people after all, but their trust was high. And living the gospel of all, above all means, we care more about each other and our unity in Christ more than we do about uniformity, about whatever opinions we should have about the culture, about what's going on around us. Have you prayed for unity in your church? We praise God this last year through the pandemic, and even now as we record this, that God has brought us unusual unity in our church. Not that we had major conflict in the last few years, but it's been an amazing grace of God to see that despite the separatedness of times, despite the hardships that we face, God has brought us unity with one purpose, to reach and grow people for Jesus Christ. Finally, you need to remember that your God is invincible. Your God is invincible. There's no human weakness that can find its hope and help except in the power of Almighty God. If your faith weakens when you're weak, perhaps your faith wasn't in Almighty God, who never changes after all. But remember, things are often not what they seem. In 1 Samuel, Absalom possessed the holy city, the ark of God, the priests, and the counselors, while David, barefoot and weeping, was in, fight, was in flight. But such momentary setbacks were in the invisible purposes of God to show once again that he was in power, and David took back the throne. Christians, we should be bold and courageous, not because we trust ourselves, but to the contrary, we trust in Almighty God. He's not the God of Islam that is false. He's not the God of Mormonism. He is the Almighty God of Scripture. And Almighty God came down to unleash His power to defeat sin, Satan, and death, so that we, too weak on our own to win the battle, would finally be free. And non-Christian friend, that is the greatest example that we have, that Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, who is the divine Son of God, came down to defeat sin for you. He lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you should have died. And on that cross, he bore the wrath of God. And he rose, he was buried, and he rose from the dead three days later, literally, bodily, physically, historically, so that we will know once and for all, our God is invincible. Doesn't mean we don't face hard times. Doesn't mean we don't have to pray. Doesn't mean that we won't suffer in this world. All those things will happen. But non-Christian friend, the only way for you not to suffer for eternity away from, from God is to turn to Christ, repent of your sins, and trust in Him and Him alone. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Turn to Him today. And while Nehemiah prayed that these, these people would, 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 have, would, would be divine under justice of God, undergirding that is a prayer of salvation. Non-Christian friend, this may sound harsh, but I do pray God turns you inside out and upside down until you make a choice whether you will follow him or not. It's your choice, ultimately. You can accept him or reject him. He's given you that opportunity. But sometimes it takes your life crashing in around you. And I don't pray you get harmed. I, I don't want you to get that sense. But I pray whatever it takes for you to see that only Christ is Lord and King, that God would bring that in your life. Because, friend, sometimes outside of that traumatic event, we don't think about such things, and we should. As we close, I just want to remind you this morning that we can't avoid suffering, we can't avoid opposition, and we shouldn't make it out 
to be something strange or unusual. If we are following Christ with a radical, unflinching devotion, we will have opposition. Let's pray together as we close this morning. Father, thank you so much for our time. Father, as we look at Nehemiah 4, we'll see next week the, uh, the further response of Sanballat and the, and the enemies as they uh, come to bear. But Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord, as individuals and as families. That, Lord, you never leave us nor forsake us. That you truly are there always with us. That, Father, you never slumber nor sleep, as the psalmist says. But, Lord, we can sleep well tonight knowing that we are redeemed, we're justified, and you are working on our behalf for the betterment of our lives and our good. Not the American prosperity dream, perhaps, Lord, but for our greatest spiritual benefit. Lord, we praise you. Praying for those today who have not known Christ, who have yet to turn and bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, your spirit would draw them. Lord, whatever it takes, inside out and upside down, for them to see what it is that you've given them, that you so love the world, that you gave your only son, Jesus Christ, that it may be so. Thank you so much for this text, Lord. In the midst of opposition, it's encouraging to see the faith of your people. We pray this today in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Guys, thank you so much for joining us. We're glad you're here. If we can answer any questions for you, we'd be glad to do so. On behalf of Pastor Nelson, who's helping record this as we record it on this day, and on behalf of our staff and our church, you're welcome to join us anytime, 10.30 a.m. in a parking lot for drive-in church, or make a reservation by calling our church uh, infos on the website. We'd love to have you as our guest. But friends, remember, stay strong. Christ is with us. God bless, and have a great day. Thank you again for joining us. Bye-bye.